In this episode of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, we talk about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, including a particular scene between Spock and Valeris toward the end of the film. Anyone who has seen the film will know which scene. Our coverage of the scene includes discussion of torture and rape. For anyone wishing to skip this part of the podcast, it begins at 38 minutes, 31 seconds into the show, and lasts for about 15 minutes, 10 seconds. We're to report back at once. We cannot abandon Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy. Of course not. 400 years ago on the planet Earth, workers who felt their livelihood threatened by automation flung their wooden shoes called sabots into the machines to stop them. Hence the word sabotage. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where not everybody keeps their genitals in the same place. I am Glenn Butler, and I'm excited today because it's the end of an era. We are back in the Star Trek Vintage Vault today for a look at the 1991 film Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country. Now, after several Star Trek episodes with several great guests, we've got a two hander once again here in the podcast Mind Palace. Which means that following on the heels of International Siblings Day, I am once again joined by my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, do je un look lean? Don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. Uh, uh, donde esta la biblioteca? Luto gros, lean. Uh... Uh, El Agua es en el mar? I concur entirely. It's been a long time since I had a foreign languages exam. Yeah, that's apparent. (laughs) (laughs) But again, as I said, we are here to talk about Star Trek VI, the end of the original series films, and a movie that is really... Really dependent on its context, right? Is it? Well, I think it's it's really of the moment. It is very much a 1991 movie, and it really sits in that context in terms of the real world and the Star Trek franchise. Well, it is definitely a product of the end of the Cold War. Yeah, ab- absolutely. There are so many parts of this movie that are just directly about the Cold War. Like, sometimes they don't even completely mask it. I mean, they have a gulag at one point that's literally a gulag. Yeah, it's actually called by the character in the movie a gulag. Yeah. Uh, The movie starts with Space Chernobyl blowing up. 
and later on it's mentioned that the explosion of space Chernobyl has caused a space ozone hole. Is it really an ozone hole? I never thought of it in that context. I think they literally called it that. I thought it was mainly that the debris from this exploded moon was raining down and irradiating the planet. We're talking, of course, about the explosion of the Klingon moon praxis. Star Trek VI is another movie about the Klingons. Actually, with the exception of Star Trek II, all the movies have had Klingons so far. And even in Star Trek II, they're mentioned. But this movie is really, really diving into the Klingons and making their equation with Soviet Russia really explicit. So when their moon explodes, it's mentioned in a briefing later, it was caused by overmining, insufficient safety precautions. The moon's decimation means a deadly pollution of their ozone. Did they say that explicitly? Okay. Yes. But again, a pollution, not a... Uh... Sure, but still, it's a very 1990s concern. In terms of trying to ape the end of the Cold War, the movie was kind of fortuitous, because it came out in December 91. Mm. And it was filmed in, like, the late winter and spring of 91. Well, between when it was filmed in the spring of 91 and when it was released in the winter of 91, right at the end of summer of 91, the Soviet Union fell. Yes. <laughs> so, that was a pretty fortuitous timing. Well, in the formulation phase of the movie, Leonard Nimoy had a hand in developing the, the story for it with you know, the scriptwriter and the director and, and some other people. And they were thinking about Perestroika, they were thinking about Glasnost, they were thinking about the deterioration and collapse of the Soviet Union. It's just fortuitous that the actual collapse happened during the making of the movie. Yeah. In retrospect, I mean, when the movie was released in 1991, it was an even closer parallel to the end of the Cold War than it was when it was originally written and filmed in the winter and spring of 91. Right. Now, this is something where... We are not far apart in age, but the small difference that we have is significant occasionally. And I think you remember this whole era of history far better than I do, right? A little bit. I mean, the Soviet Union fell in 1991. I was 13. So I wasn't exactly paying a lot of attention to the international political news. Right. But more than you were at the age of 7. Right. I hadn't really heard of the outside world yet. That's one of two times when you woke me up for an entirely unrelated reason and then later informed me of world-shaking news out of Russia. Because the day that the Soviet power brokers tried to depose Gorbachev and replace him with a man who I believe was named Gennady Yanayev, which is a name that sticks in your mind. Yeah. You woke me up very early that day, because the day before was a party that we had for our father's 50th birthday and our grandmother's 80th birthday, which were two days apart, and on the day in between we had a big party for the both of them, because they were both reaching significant landmark birthdays, and it was like the day after that party, there was like a some sort of massive storm system coming through. I don't think it was quite a hurricane, but there were winds, heavy, heavy, heavy winds, and heavy, heavy, heavy rain, and we had to go and collect all the lawn chairs from the party the day before, before they all blew away, 
into the, into across the neighborhood. And so you woke me up to go out into this monsoon and collect all the lawn chairs before they were blown away. And when I came back inside, after being drenched and, and blown around by the wind, everyone was sitting around watching Good Morning America. Oh, by the way, Gorbachev was deposed overnight. Good morning. <laughs> and that happened again on New Year's 2000. Yes, that one I remember. Where you woke me up to say all the fireworks worked in Australia, so there doesn't seem to be any Y2K problem yet. This was, I guess, the day of New Year's Eve 2000. It was already New Year's Day in Australia. And you woke me up to say, well, everything seems to have gone off without a hitch in Australia. No Y2K apocalypse so far. And oh, by the way, Boris Yeltsin resigned overnight. There's a new Russian president. This is a pattern where you wake me up for a completely unrelated reason, and then, oh, by the way, earth-shaking political news out of Russia. I'll make sure to wake you up for some other reason whenever uh, Putin gets deposed. Yeah. So anyway, what were we talking about before I went down that? Uh, we're trying to talk about 1991. Trying. Yeah, trying as hard as we can. I mean, we're not yet talking Star Trek going at it as hard as we can, but we'll get there. We're, we're going to try. <laughs> we're talking Star Trek going at it as hard as we can. We're Scott and Glenn on the PTBN. Yes, precisely. <laughs> so there are a lot of things going on in the world. And trying to make a new Star Trek movie... The thought was to go right after that. Well, that wasn't the first thought. There was some... There were some other thoughts. We can get into that, too. We should get into that. Yeah, absolutely. This is the first movie since the first Star Trek movie made without the influence of Harv Bennett because he left following some of the fallout of Star Trek V. Well, when they were developing the ideas for Star Trek VI... Harv Bennett was strongly of the opinion that the main cast was getting too old to believably be action stars in Star Trek movies. And they were too expensive to keep paying them because basically all seven of them could hold the production hostage. Because, you know, if you suddenly made one of these movies without Chekhov or without Uhura, the fans would go apeshit. So effectively all seven of them could hold up the production for whatever weird demands they had. And they were getting too expensive because all seven of them were known the stars of the franchise. And he thought they were all getting too old. So his idea was to stop using the original cast, go back in time, do like a Starfleet Academy story with all younger, unknown actors as the original characters. And this was his idea, and he decided this was the way to go. This was the hill he was going to die on. And when the studio eventually decided, no, we're not going to do that, Harv Bennett left the production. Yeah, there were all sorts of internecine studio politics going on. Paramount Studio executives were shuffling in and out. Um, I, I believe there's some detail about this in Bill Shatner's Movie Memories book about, you know, executives who would come in and find out they're talking about making a Star Trek movie without the cast? Put the kibosh on that! And different executives said different things, and it was just going on and on, circling around this. At one point, Harf Bennett drafted a script with kind of a framing scene of the original cast 
You know, as if they're in the framing story of a sitcom clip show where they're sitting around saying, hey, remember when we were at the Academy? And then you have the movie with the cheap cast, you know, to try to appease people, to try to tell these executives and the cast members and the fans, look, we're going to get them in the movie. But eventually that was rejected outright. The studio wanted a movie with the whole original cast and Harv Bennett decided he was out... Well, you can see that from the studio's perspective, because if you're not that familiar with the franchise, and you're not familiar with the dynamics of the franchise, it's very easy to be a studio executive and say, wait a minute, we have seven recognizable stars that have been in this thing since 1966, and you want to get rid of all seven of them? Right, exactly. (laughs) That's not how you maintain the popularity of your franchise. Yeah, I wonder also if the existence of The Next Generation played into that a little, too. Because there was an ongoing popular show to prove that, you know, you can have all new actors and all new characters, even, and, you know, it's still okay. People are still going to like it. I'm pretty sure that would have been part of Harv Bennett's argument. Say, you know, look, people watch this thing that has nothing to do with anything. None of the same actors, none of the same characters, none of the same ships, none of the same anything except the name Star Trek on it. And it's very popular. But at the same time, I can see a studio executive that's not necessarily familiar with the internecine workings of the Star Trek franchise going, you know, whoa, wait a minute. We have seven stars that these people have been watching for 25 years. We're not going to get rid of all seven of them from the franchise. Right. And so with Harv Bennett gone... There are things you can read about Bill Shatner trying to make a play to direct Star Trek VI to somewhat try to make up for Star Trek V, maybe. I don't see anyone after Star Trek V letting Bill Shatner direct Star Trek VI. No, that didn't really get off the ground. From some things that I read, they asked Nimoy if he wanted to do it, and he decided not to. But they wound up bringing back Nicholas Meyer, who had written and directed Star Trek II, wrote the majority of Star Trek IV, and he came in because there was the idea that he would know how to kind of write the ship with Star Trek. There was the idea that he could work well under constraints. The budget constraints for this movie were extreme. We're saying this about all the Star Trek movies. Like, after the first one, everyone got all a fright, and they didn't want to spend any money on any of these things. To be fair, though, this is the movie it's the least obvious in. I mean, with the possible exception of two. Two looked really good. But three, you look at that planet set and you just see that it's sort of cheap and doesn't really work. Four is filmed almost entirely in modern day, so you save a lot of money there. Five looks cheap as hell. This movie looks great. This movie doesn't look like it's made on a shoestring. This movie doesn't look like they skimped on sets or effects. Or models or anything like that. This movie looks really good. Well, I think to an extent that's because they kind of leaned on the Next Generation sets a lot. And also where they needed new things, they kind of picked their spots. I think other than a corridor on the Klingon ship, there isn't a single new starship set in this movie. It's all... You know, the Enterprise bridge set that had been built for Star Trek V, I think, after there was some weather event that had destroyed the old bridge set. Or the old bridge set was the Battle Bridge from Next Generation, which 
had also been replaced in 1990 for the best of both worlds, so that might be the same thing. But what was the set that was the Excelsior Bridge? That was the Enterprise Bridge. Really? Yeah. They shot all the Excelsior scenes first before they shot anything on the Enterprise Bridge. That was just redressed. Pretty extensively. It didn't look exactly like the Enterprise Yeah, I was going to say, it's really extensively. Because there was a lot of next generation flavor on the Excelsior Bridge. There was a little more. I think some of the uh, production designers from Next Gen were helping out on this. Okuda had been working on the movie since Star Trek IV, I think. Yeah. Um, but Herman Zimmerman, I think, came in for this one, too. The Excelsior Bridge has a lot of Next Generation feel. The ops and helm consoles are very much like the Next Generation forward consoles. A lot of the controls are like Toast-style controls, but they're a TNG touchscreen instead of the old Toast switches like they still have on the Enterprise set. Yeah, the Enterprise set has a lot more buttons and switches. Yeah, well, the, the, the Excelsior controls basically looked like the Enterprise controls, except on a TNG touchscreen. It was a really good sort of hybrid of the two styles. Right, to try to play into more of the themes of aging and what might be outdated. You know, I've said before, all these movies are about aging, and this one... More than most. Well, we'll, we'll get, we'll get that. there. We'll get there too. Yeah. Right now, we're talking about a lot of things at once, but that's I, kind of what we do. I thought we were trying to talk about the Cold War parallels from 1991. Well, now we're talking about the bridge sets, apparently. But 1991 was also the 25th anniversary year for the Star Trek franchise, and that was being marked in a lot of ways. You know, there were special lines of memorabilia, there were lots of things going on. There was this new movie was commissioned partly by some people to make up for Star Trek V, partly to celebrate the 25th anniversary, and partly to draw the story of the original series cast to a close. And so it's kind of unique as an anniversary special, if you want to think of it that way, because usually an anniversary show is very celebratory. And this movie has a much darker tone. It's much more melancholy in the way that it considers its characters. And it's coming out in the midst of the end of the Cold War. And one of the things that Leonard Nimoy wanted to do when he came on to help with the story and, and the production was to dive into that. And so this Star Trek movie, rather than a straight-up comedy like we had in 4, or what we had in 5, which was kind of a hybrid of a Toast-style action-y episode with a little bit of mysticism and a little bit of comedy kind of thrown in throughout. This movie is much more tonally unified, and it's a big tonal shift. Well, this movie takes itself a lot more seriously. It really does. It does not try to be flippant like large parts of Star Trek V did. Exactly, yeah. Because the world that it's taking place in is a lot less flippant, and the issues it's addressing are a lot less flippant. You know, the, the Klingons had always been sort of substitutes for the Soviets, but the way that that's being considered more is a lot more serious. That's something I never really saw. 
The Klingons were only stand-ins for the Soviets in so much as they were the enemies of the Federation. They didn't really have anything else in common with the Soviets. Well, there was this sort of border tension, you know, that is an analog to the First and Second World, if you want to use those terms. And also, the TV show kind of shifted between identifying the Federation, once it identified the Federation as the organization that our characters are in, that didn't happen for about half a season or so, (laughs) as sort of a cross between the United States in space and the United Nations in space. Yeah. And that sort of tension persisted through the series. In this movie, it's much more falling on the side of the United States in space, with the Klingons as a separate country with a lot of tension. And it also takes great pains to cast the Klingons in a much more serious light. In the last movie, you had General Kord, who was kind of a bumbling old fat man, and you had Captain Claw, who was a young punk inviting the whole galaxy to the gun show. Yes. Where in this movie, the main Klingons are played by David Warner as Chancellor Gorkon and Christopher Plummer as General Chang, two respectable British Shakespearean actors. And you have the Klingons talking about Shakespeare. They're talking about what we view in the present day as a sort of highbrow, rarefied literature. You know, the Klingons in previous movies were not going to be going around spouting lines from Hamlet. The one thing about David Warner's performance is that while he tried to make Gorkhan, like, stately and impressive, he was also trying very hard to not sound like St. John Talbot. True. Yeah, they had him back from the previous movie. And you could kind of hear that in his voice. He was sort of trying to sound impressive and commanding as befitting a head of state, while also trying to sound very different from how he sounded in the previous movie. And of course, casting the Klingons this way goes farther toward the themes of aging that are in all these movies, because these are older actors, these are older characters, ones who are about on even footing with our heroes, which is not always the case. And also, in terms of the seriousness of the Klingons, we talked about Christopher Lloyd in Star Trek III, and how he did a good job portraying his Klingon captain, but it's a very different portrayal than we see here. Yeah, there's just something about Christopher Lloyd. You know, he is not stately and impressive. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't hear the voice of Dr. Emmett L. Brown and think, well, that is an impressive commanding presence. Right. Also, watching this movie, I was thinking about how it relates to The Next Generation. Because obviously, by this point, we're a few seasons into Next Gen. This came out in 1991. This was during season 5, actually. But it was filmed between season 4 and 5, probably, right? Yeah. And so, Next Gen has already done a lot with the Klingons. And it kind of assumed a negotiated peace being reached between the Federation and the Klingons at some point. And now 
the original series movies are actively engaging with that sort of implied history in Next Gen, in showing a little bit of how that comes to be. Also, of course, in Next Gen, we saw more of the seat of Klingon power. They went to Kronos, they went to the High Council, they met the Chancellor. So here, the original series gets to do that for the first time. Before, it was always individual captains on individual ships, doing raiding runs or confronting the Enterprise or whatever, but now it's... Kronos One, it's the Chancellor, it's his close advisors. These are people a little higher up on the hierarchy than we'd ever seen with this original series crew and in this setting. Well, naturally, because the Federation and the Klingon Empire have always been enemies. It's not like the crew of an American aircraft carrier is going to meet Gorbachev, you know? Yeah. You don't meet with the national leaders of your enemies. Or, or at least you pe- probably shouldn't. People that aren't diplomats don't meet with the national leaders of your enemies. People that are commanding a random ship out at sea don't meet with the national leaders of your enemies. You know, a diplomatic envoy may go to Moscow and meet with Gorbachev, but the captain of a random destroyer patrolling the South Atlantic is not going to go to Moscow and meet with Gorbachev. Yeah, the captain of a random destroyer, if, if that captain is meeting with the leader of Russia then uh, something think, went wrong. Yeah, there are some higher-ups who are going to want to talk to him. <laughs> Except on The Next Generation, that is kind of what happens more, where they're meeting with leaders and they're meeting with politicians and ambassadors and all that. And so here, the original series crew does that kind of for the first time. The original series crew gets inserted to it in a couple of ways because... Spock's father is the Vulcan ambassador. Spock sort of gets sucked in to an ambassadorial role because he has all of these unique backgrounds. He is the son of the ambassador. He is a non-human who has lived among the humans and so can relate to other non-humans trying to relate to the humans. He also has a background in Starfleet and can represent the Federation military establishment. He has all these disparate backgrounds that sort of combine into him that puts him in this unique place where he can deal with a foreign power, he can represent aliens trying to relate to humans, he can represent the point of view of the military establishment. He has a unique combination that no one else can bring to the table to try to negotiate with the Klingons. And also they need a military escort. You know, that's in that respect, the Enterprise is basically an honor guard escorting the Chancellor to his ambassadorial meeting. It's an honor guard, but they're also tasked with trying to get some of those discussions started. They host this state dinner with Gorkhan and Chang and a lot of the Klingon higher-ups... Which, Which is an unmitigated disaster because Kirk is not a diplomat. He is not a diplomat. Spock is a diplomat. Captain Picard is a diplomat. Kirk is not a diplomat. And that is readily apparent from this attempted diplomatic dinner that he holds. Nobody on this crew, except for Spock, is prepared to be a diplomat in any way. In part because in this movie, they are all gigantic honking space racists. Well, it's a natural tendency to vilify your enemy. Right, of course, it's something that military people do almost as a matter of course, going by what I read. 
and it's something that we can kind of read into the past Klingon episodes, but it is really hit on explicitly many, many times in this movie. Yeah. Like, right from the beginning, when they're having the briefing about the Klingon situation, and Admiral Cartwright, played by Brock Peters, who, from what I read, was not really comfortable with the undertones of this scene, or the overtones, as you could say, just says that his main concern when it comes to the situation with the Klingons is what it means for his warmongering. And also that if the Federation accepts Klingon refugees, they'll become the trash of the galaxy. Yes! Which is a line that, like a lot in Star Trek, it works at the time, and then you look back on it 25 years later, and it works even more. Because that line from Admiral Cartwright works fine in 1991, and it works fine when you watch it in 2001. But when you watch it in the age of the Trump presidential campaign, and the Syrian refugee issue... How was that written 25 years ago and not last week? Yeah. It's like watching the DS9 episodes, Homefront and Paradise Lost, and it blows your mind that those episodes were not written post-9-11. Yeah, those episodes are about the war on terror in its exactitude. Yeah, those episodes are exactly 100% about the war on terror, except they were written five, six, seven years before the war on terror. Yeah, and that is definitely a line that rings with a lot of meaning. Yes, exactly. And of course, the Admiral is concerned about what it means for his own warmongering. Captain Kirk immediately signs on to all the warmongering. You know, Klingons aren't trustworthy. They're animals. Let them die. Let them die. Literally. That's the way a military fighter sees his enemy. Kirk's been fighting the Klingons for 30 or 40 years. He has, but to take that characterization that far is something that does a lot for the movie, but it was kind of controversial in some circles. What, people are outraged that their favorite character may have a flaw? Yeah, well, sort of. That's the thing that happens. Gene Roddenberry was kind of outraged that his character would have a flaw. Well, if you want to get into that... Um, but Gene Roddenberry was outraged about a great many things. Before we go further, I should mention that um, this is, of course, the first movie that came out after Gene Roddenberry died. And pretty soon after he died, I believe. Yeah, I think he died earlier in 91. Yeah, it was screened for him a couple of days before he died, actually. And they put a little R.I.P. message on the front of the movie... As he was with, frankly, all the movies that he didn't make, he was resolutely opposed <laughs> to much of went on in this. Well, this was after Roddenberry had started Next Generation. Yes. And Roddenberry's idea for Next Generation was basically, well, humans have evolved beyond flaws. Which was a serious impediment for the writers of Next Generation trying to come up with stories to tell. It was basically every week it was, oh, we met this new alien race and they have a problem. Because humans weren't allowed to have problems anymore. There's that aspect to it. Uh, there's also something to be said for utopian storytelling. But that might be another topic. <laughs> Star Trek VI is in some ways not very utopian storytelling. In other ways, you could say that it is. 
Because, you know, the entire struggle of the movie is to avoid the war. You know, the war is the failure state at any moment in this movie. And it's kind of putting our heroes, these people who have been fighting this war, hot and cold, whatever it may be, with the Klingons for so long, in the position of desperately trying to avoid a war. And despite all of the space racism that they direct toward the Klingons, they have to kind of revisit that by the end of the movie. What do you mean, revisit it? I mean, they have to realize that they've been giant honking racists. I don't know that they necessarily do. You know, there's the scene at the end of the movie where they're saying that if complicity depended on how they felt about the Klingons, then they were all complicit. Yeah, but they don't necessarily say anything about, well, we were so wrong. They just say, well, yeah, I agreed with her. I just wasn't willing to conspire to murder a head of state over it. I think it's significant that that's in the past tense. And then there's also Kirk's line that everybody's human. That, I'm not sure what to make of that line, and I wonder what you make of that line, because that seemed like a very human chauvinistic line. Well, that line is either really, really racist or speciesist, or whatever you want to call it, or it's really rather remarkably forward-thinking. It has to be one or the other. It might be both, actually. It might be a little bit of both. It might be that sort of white liberal thing where you're actually making a decent point, but the way you're making it is so incredibly fucking insular and unconsciously racist. <laughs> like Chekhov in the dinner scene. Where Chekhov says, certainly all beings are entitled to inalienable human rights. And Azetbor calls him out, like, why are they human rights? You, you human racist. Yeah, where, where Chekhov is actually, like, this close to a really important fucking point that, you know, no matter if we're human or Vulcan or Klingon or Romulan or, or, or Binar or Cardassian or Tellarite or Andorian or whatever... There are certain unalienable rights, rights that are not alien to any being, no matter how alien we are to each other. Except he has to stick the word human in there and totally ruin his entire point. Yeah, and Azepar in that scene is pretty much the only person in the whole movie who, like, adequately calls out the racism of the other characters. And I think Kirk is doing the same thing in the later scene, where he says, everybody's human, by which he probably means, you know, there's nothing special about being human. I'm from Earth, and you're from Vulcan, and they're from Klingon, and there's people from Andor, and people from Telar, and people from Sigma Draconius, and people from Troyus, and people from all these other places, and they're all people. And there's no difference between them. Some of them have antennas, some of them have pointed ears... So some of them have, like, you know, three noses, some of them are beige, some of them are brown, some of them are blue. They're all just people. There's no difference. Except he, the way he says that is everybody's human. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that people do sometimes. It's like when you're trying to express that men and women are equal by calling women one of the guys. Yeah, it's that sort of thing that people do where... They recognize that there are forms of discrimination based on differences between people, and so to try to work against that, they just say, Oh, there's no difference! When the point is that there are categories, no matter how socially constructed and whatnot, the point is that that doesn't matter in terms of how you treat people. 
Well, that's what I say. Kirk is either making a really good point or he's being kind of racist. Because the other interpretation of that line is, well, human is a synonym for person. And so anyone who qualifies as a person can just be lumped in as human. Whereas the main point he should be making is that humans aren't the only people. Vulcans are also people and Klingons are also people and Tellarites are also people. And Well, this is the guy who said over Spock's casket... That, you know, of all the souls that I've met, his was the most human. So, yeah, so Kirk is sort of being the white racist. <laughs> white racist. <laughs> Kirk is also being the white liberal here. Where he's like so close to a good point and he has such good intentions and he wants to treat everyone right and he just can't quite get past his own prejudices. I don't, I don't even mean prejudices in that way. He just... He just can't quite get past the preconceptions in his own mind in order to make the really good point that he wants to make. And of course, he says this line to Spock, who responds, you know, I consider that insulting. <laughs> Which is entirely his right, you know? Yes. It's like when a white guy goes around and says, you know, I'm an honorary black guy. No, you're not. No. That's not the way it works. That's not how any of this works. It, it really, really isn't. And of course, there isn't really anyone on the crew who gets away clean from this whole thing. I mean, even Uhura at one point says, Did you see how they eat? Which is just really, really bad. Yeah, well, you know, that's also an old... Thing, judging people based on their table manners. Yeah. Or based on your table manners. Exactly. Apparently, Nichelle Nichols refused to say the line that eventually went to Chekhov, guess who's coming to dinner, because she really didn't want to be a part of that. <laughs> um, and there was another line scripted for her, something along the lines of, you know, would you let your daughter marry a Klingon? Which is just... Well, there is a certain amount of logic giving these lines to Nichelle Nichols and Brock Peters. Because that sort of reinforces the point that these views that the humans hold about Klingons are disgustingly racist. And putting those views into the mouths of African American actors reinforces that point. It does, but at the same time, I can see how an African American actor would be really uncomfortable with those scenes. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, it's not even subtext, it's just text. Well, yeah. They're not being subtle about this. And I'm sure there are people who, who would lay that at Nick Meyer as well. People think that he is very unsubtle. Yeah. I mean, the racism parallel is as unsubtle as the Russian parallel, really. The following segment of the podcast covers the scene between Spock and Valeris we mentioned earlier, including discussion of torture and rape. This discussion lasts for 15 minutes and 10 seconds. Something else that inspires a lot of discussion about this movie is the violation of Lieutenant Valeris at the hands of Spock toward the end of the movie. This movie is all about vast conspiracies among people in the seat of power. It comes to light that higher-ups in the Starfleet military structure, as well as General Chang and people in the Klingon military structure, as well as the Romulan ambassador Nonclus, which I always thought was a cool name, have been conspiring to kill the Klingon Chancellor for his idealism and his goal of achieving peace with the Federation and 
Lieutenant Valeris, Spock's latest protege, is the element of that conspiracy on the Enterprise. And so there is what I feel is a very uncomfortable interrogation sequence where Spock forcibly mind melds with her and extracts information with great force. Yes. This is a scene that I don't feel it would be that controversial to refer to it as the mind rape scene. I believe that you disagree and maybe have a different take on it. I do disagree. I find it very interesting because you're far from the only one to use that term. That's a very popular term for this scene. Everybody refers to this as the mind rape scene. Even people who don't use that term in any other context. In any other context, these same people would be quite stridently making the point that you shouldn't be using that loaded term rape to refer to things that aren't rape. Rape is a horrible crime to commit against a person and don't toss the term around flippantly just to refer to any sort of bad thing. The IRS didn't rape you, they just made you pay your taxes. The building contractor didn't rape you, they just made you pay for the building that you ordered. People get really angry when people flippantly throw around this term rape. Oh, that salesman raped me, or that, you know, that bill collector raped me, or whatever. And people are justifiably, entirely correctly angry when the term gets tossed around like that, because rape is a horrible thing, and nothing else that is not rape is rape. Until you get to this scene, and then everyone's throwing around mind rape. And so I find that a questionable dichotomy, double standard, whatever you want to call it. Why is it okay to call this mind rape and it's not okay to call everything else a rape? Because I feel the same thing about this. This is not a mind rape. This is an invasion of the mind, but it's not a rape. Rape is rape. This is not rape. It is a violation in the most intimate way. It is an invasion of someone's body and mind. No, it's not. It's only an invasion of their mind. He is handling her bodily at the same time. He's touching a few nerves on her face. That is not rape. He's... He is restraining her and violating her in an extremely intimate way. I don't think that it's that much of a leap. I do. I don't agree with your description. People get restrained when they're under suspicion of a crime. That's what happens. She is being held so she cannot escape. She's being interrogated. Okay, okay. Do you think it's inarguable that she's being tortured in this scene? Oh, she's not being tortured. Seriously? He is not inflicting pain. He's merely searching through her mind. He's not inflicting pain. Why is she screaming? He is not beating her. He is not shoving bamboo sticks under her fingernails. He's not inflicting electric shocks. He's not waterboarding her. He is forcibly mind-melding with her. He is interrogating her via forced telepathy. It is a bad thing. It is probably a violation of some huge Vulcan taboo. I imagine it's not pleasant when she's trying to stop him. And he is, like, fighting her telepathic barriers to get at the information he's looking for. Especially at the end, when she actually doesn't have the information he needs. And so he basically has to shred all of her defenses in order to find whether or not she has the information, or is just trying to hide it. 
I can't imagine it's pleasant. It pro- she probably feels as if her mind has been violated. He obviously doesn't find it pleasant. He reacts with horror at what he's done because, you know, forced telepathy is not a pleasant thing. But it's not rape. And it's not torture. I think it's pretty inarguably torture. And there's also... I cannot imagine how you could consider this to be torture. And there's also the gendered dynamic and the age dynamic that makes it a sci-fi parallel of rape. I mean, it's sci-fi rape, but I don't think that that is... I don't think the term is a leap. Is he forcing his penis into some orifice of her body? It's sci-fi rape. What does that mean? He's forcing a tentacle into some orifice of her body? He's forcing himself into her. Yes. No, he's, he's, forc- not. he's forcing his mind into hers. There is forced telepathy. That's not rape. Listeners can make up their mind about that one, I suppose. We mentioned before times when Star Trek was prefiguring the war on terror, and this seemed to me very much like the sort of bullshit, ticking clock, torture is necessary scenario that you'd see on like a 24 or something like that. Well, the difference is that torture doesn't work in obtaining accurate information, whereas telepathy would. Well, torture works in fiction. You know, on 24, torture works. You know, on on, on 24 and on, you know, police procedurals and on Star Trek Enterprise... That's the other reason I can't analogize it to torture. In addition to the fact that it's not the deliberate infliction of pain in order to obtain cooperation. You don't think it was painful? If it was painful, it was merely as a byproduct. The that is splitting a mighty fine hair. No, it's not at all. The goal of torture is to inflict pain until you break the will of the person. Spock was not deliberately inflicting pain, and he wasn't trying to break her will. He was interrogating her. He was breaking her mental barriers. And forcing himself upon her. So by that logic, the SWAT team raped the drug den? You're being... By By that logic, the Eagles' offense raped the Giants' defense? They penetrated them? They forced themselves through the defensive line? You are being extremely obtuse. I don't like throwing around the word rape about things that aren't rape. It makes me uncomfortable. Because it trivializes the actual thing that is rape. I agree with that in terms of throwing it around flippantly. I don't think that describing this scene that way is flippant. Well, that's the thing that I said to start out with. You agree that we shouldn't throw around that word rape to describe things that aren't rape. Except in this instance. This In this instance, it's fine. Also torture. Call this torture, too. Because why not? Is it also fraud and embezzlement? Because Because those are bad things. Because he's inflicting pain and breaking her down to extract information. He's not doing either of those things. He is forcibly communicating with her telepathically. And if she is trying to defend her mind or block him from information, he is battling those defenses. He is not deliberately inflicting pain. He is not forcing his penis into any part of her body. He is not forcing any other part of his body into any part of her body. If anything, it's like an extreme interrogation. He is not inflicting pain to try to break her will. 
he is merely forcibly telepathically communicating with her. That implies a pretty strong mind-body dualism. That committing mental assault is that different from physical assault. Well, it is. I mean, you can say that the mental assault is wrong. That's a separate discussion. But it is different. Let's move on to that discussion, because I don't know how much more fruitful discussion we have here. Is this a scene that you think belonged in this movie? Uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by it didn't belong? I mean, is this something that in the scripting stage or production stage should have been caught and deemed unacceptable to have in the movie? I don't see why. We've seen Spock use the mind meld to extract information before. Do you think committing this act speaks ill of Spock's character the way that being gigantic racists does for all of the other Enterprise crew members? It probably does to an extent. Like I said, this is probably violating some rather massive Vulcan taboo around their telepathic abilities and the mind meld. I would imagine forcing a meld on an unwilling partner is a rather extreme taboo among a species that can communicate telepathically. I, w I would imagine that if a person from a species that can communicate telepathically tries to protect their thoughts and keep them private and you break that protection to take their thoughts unwillingly, I imagine that's a rather major taboo in a society of people that can communicate telepathically. You can argue that the situation is dire and that justifies what he did. You can argue that nothing would justify what he did. That's an argument you can make on both sides. I would say that this probably violates some taboo of Vulcan society, much the way that Kirk stealing a starship and going to the planet Forbidden violates the rules of Starfleet and the Federation, much the way that Uhura pulling a phaser on the transporter operator and locking him in the closet violates the rules of Starfleet and the Federation. These people have been very flippant with the rules since... Star Trek 3, it's very much an ends-justify-the-means sort of milieu we've been operating in the last four or five movies. I mean, you can argue that this interrogation technique is wrong and should not be used, or you can argue that the situation is important enough preventing the assassination of another head of state is important enough to use this interrogation technique. In that sense, it is sort of analogous to a torture scene, except that, like I said, the difference is that this method actually provides reliable information that you can act on, whereas torture does not. That would be the reason why you can argue that this is justified and cannot argue that torture is justified. Because even after you torture somebody, you still don't have accurate information you can rely on. Well, that's why there's the argument that depicting torture in such a way that shows it as producing reliable information in fiction is irresponsible for media franchises to do. I would agree with that. And so there's that whole deeply uh, <laughs> irresponsible dynamic that the scene is playing into. I still don't agree that it's playing into that dynamic, though. Because this isn't torture. This is not the deliberate infliction of pain for the purpose of breaking someone's will. This is like forcibly giving someone a truth serum, if a 100% reliable truth serum existed. 
I mean, you're you're violating her Miranda rights. You're violating her right to remain silent lest anything she say be used against her in a court of law. You're not inflicting massive amounts of pain for the purpose of breaking her will. I think the way that it's treated in the movie and the way that Kim Cattrall treats it in her acting in that scene portrays it as quite brutal. It probably is in a way. You know, brutal and painful and an extreme violation. It's definitely a violation of sorts. And it's probably... I'm not sure the word to use. It's maybe shocking? Like I said, it's probably a very heavy taboo in Vulcan society. And for Spock to break that taboo, I'm sure, is shocking and horrific to somebody raised within that society. Also, the thing that occurred to me the last time I saw this movie was that immediately after Spock pushes and pushes and pushes and determines that Valeris doesn't know where the new conference is taking place, he immediately tells Uhura to contact the Excelsior. They're going to tell them where the conference is. Then why did he just violate her so brutally if he can just find it out immediately? Well, first of all, they needed the information he got in terms of the co-conspirators and the ship that can fire while cloaked and all that other information. At that point, why did he press further to try to get the location before contacting Excelsior? There's several possible reasons. A, he didn't want to involve Sulu any more than he already was, maybe. I mean, right now, Sulu still has plausible deniability. He hasn't actually aided the fugitives. B... Spock is pretty pissed. I mean, look at the scene where she shows up in the sick bay to murder him, but she doesn't know it's him. And look at him in that scene. He has never been this pissed off. And when he slaps that phaser out of her hand and then drags her up onto the bridge, this is not calm, sedate Vulcan Spock. Spock is betrayed and angry and hurt and pissed off. And so that's why... He goes so far with it that when it's over, he reacts in horror at what he has done. Before he sort of collects himself and regroups and puts back that Vulcan mask. Speaking of being pissed off, I think it's time to maybe go to our mid-show break. We're going to listen to some ads, we're going to get some water, we're going to breathe a little... And we are going to be back with the rest of our discussion of Star Trek VI. We will see you on the other side.
promotional consideration paid for by the following. What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Kelly. Make sure you check out every episode of The Kevin Kelly Show right here on the Place to Be Nation. PlaceToBeNation.com, The Kevin Kelly Show. Every episode is a winner. At least we hope. Place to Be Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to The Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes and PlaceToBeNation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on The Mothership, The Place to Be Podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. we got sports covered, too, with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott... Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceToBeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro-wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Slees. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Nobody needs me. Come on, I need you. And welcome back to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, discussing Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Now, in all of these Star Trek movies, we have looked at the use of the characters old and new. Especially old, since as we've seen in all of these movies so far, they they are, to one extent or another, about how old the characters are getting. That is something that runs through this movie very much, because the whole thing is framed as kind of the end of an era, and it takes on that kind of melancholy feel, and that's expressed in different ways by some of the characters. So I'd like to examine some of that. Well, this movie is very much set up as the end of an era, because they all knew going in it was going to be the last original series movie. Right, exactly. So it's set up as the end of an era, it's set up to pass the torch, even the main storyline of the end of the Cold War and reaching peace with the Klingons, which is sort of setting up the situation we see in the first season of Next Generation. So there's a lot in this movie that it's basically 
the end of the 25 years of the original series. And the beginning of the next 25 years of Star Trek, which, you know, we've experienced now, here in the 50th anniversary year. I suppose you could look at it that way. There certainly was a lot more Star Trek in the 25th anniversary year. Yes, that's for sure. A lot more Star Trek, a little less inter-corporate squabbling. Well, it was all owned by one company at that time. Makes things easier. Exactly. It was all owned by a Gulf Plus Western corporation, if I recall. No, actually, I think by this point it was a Paramount Communications company. Really? I believe at this point Paramount Pictures was no longer a Gulf Plus Western company. Paramount Pictures was now a Paramount Communications company. It was not yet a Viacom company. Well, we'll track those changes as we go through these movies as well. No, we won't. (laughs) Sorry, listeners. We don't want to make empty promises. (laughs) Now, we've mentioned some of the characterization before. We've mentioned the racism that's been hit on pretty heavily. And we're going to hit a little on the aging. But that comes through differently with different characters. First, let's talk about Captain Kirk, who kind of has a split dynamic. Since, on the one hand, he's trying to be kind of brash in the way that Kirk is. But at the same time, he's kind of done he says at one point, we've done our bit for king and country. You know, he... Which is the exact same sentiment he expresses later in Generations. Yes, exactly. He's getting a little more wistful, would you say? I don't really see that. How do you mean that? Well, he seems to be thinking a little more about his career, certainly as it relates to the Klingons that he's fought for a long time. There is a significant callback to his son which is a source of melancholy and wistfulness. Also, I believe Merritt Buttrick had died a couple of years before this movie was made, and so it's a callback to the actor as well as the character. But that aspect of Kirk's history is kind of meditated on a little more than it had been in the last couple of movies. Well, they basically used that to exacerbate his anti-Klingon biases. Right. Is it possible that the reason why he didn't display those anti-Klingon biases quite so vociferously at the end of Star Trek V as he does throughout Star Trek VI is that he's starting to get older and more set in his ways? You know how a lot of older people sort of turn racist? I don't know about turn, but A lot of older people stop hiding their racism? Well, there's a dynamic that happens... When a person can go from being considered a liberal to being considered a conservative by never changing their views. Just the society around them changes. Well, yes, that's true, but that's not what's happening with Kirk. They have all this whole reception in the forward observation lounge at the end of Star Trek V. And nobody in that scene says, did you see how they eat? True, but at the same time, he doesn't particularly trust any of them either. Well, when he invites them over for a state dinner in Star Trek VI, it's like a big thing. It's like, holy shit, Kirk invited the Klingons over to have dinner. Meanwhile, at the end of Star Trek V, they had a cocktail party with them. True. It it is pretty discordant, and I don't want to go out on too much of a limb trying to make everything fit together, because I'm not sure that's a great fandom aesthetic. But the discordance is there, and I think it's there because of the different themes that the movies are examining. This movie is about those tensions, and so it's going to play them up. You know, in Star Trek V, it was 
incidental, really. Well, as much as this movie is set up as the end of an era, Kirk is the character that's going to be featured pretty prominently in the next movie with the Next Generation crew. Because there ain't no grave that can hold his body down. Uh, there ain't. One could argue that that's pretty discordant as well. I know that's one criticism, but we'll get there in the next episode. I think it's also notable owing to Kirk's age and William Shatner's age and the sort of themes that the movie's examining is that there isn't a whole lot of slam-bang action for Captain Kirk here. The one exception is a dodgy fight scene that he has with himself, which must have been his lifelong ambition, right? That was kind of a fun scene from one perspective, but watching that scene, what it made me think of more than anything, watching Kirk fight Kirk, is it made me think of Superman 3 when Superman fights Clark Kent in the scrapyard. Yes. And Kirk versus Kirk is not as good a fight scene as Superman versus Clark Kent. Well, I think the Superman versus Clark Kent scene has a lot more weighty symbolism than this scene has. Especially in terms of the potential for huge S's to come out and be used. But Yeah, that's what that scene was really missing, I thought. One of the Kirks should have like pulled a dynamic cellophane S out of thin air and thrown it at the other Kirk. Cellophane is the word I was looking for, thank you. <laughs> the Kirk versus Kirk fight scene, of course there's going to be symbolism there. Of course there's mirroring going on and... The image of Kirk fighting himself is one that holds some attraction as far as imagery goes. But, again, that's not really what the movie is about. Other than the sort of surface-level interpretation of, oh, Kirk is wrestling with himself. Which he has to do a little bit. That's also the scene where he most, like, lets loose with the Shatnerisms. Oh yeah, he Shatners it up more in that scene than anywhere else in the movie. Yeah. Once again, Nick Meyer does a really good job of getting a really good performance out of William Shatner. Yeah, and in this one scene, he just kind of lets him go. Well, if you're going to let him go in one scene, let it be in the scene where he's in there twice. The ship has already sailed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although that was kind of a clever way to avoid having a huge fight scene between William Shatner and Iman. Yeah, and indeed, in terms of plot mechanics, a physical fight scene between William Shatner and Christopher Plummer. Hmm. I mean, they do actually share scenes together in this movie, but by the time of the big climax, you once again, uh, in a Nick Meyer movie, in a you know Nick Meyer script, have Kirk and General Chang kind of bloviating at each other over the communicator. You keep pointing that out as if it's a bad thing. Personally, I would much rather see a space battle than a fist fight. I don't think it's a great weakness of the movie. I just think it's interesting. I think as well that the space battle is preferable, especially to, you know, whatever fist fight you would get between Bill Shatner and Christopher Plummer. Which, I mean, they both have far-ranging talents as actors, but I don't know that I need to see them duke it out. Not at the age of 60 or whatever they were at that time. Right. And their dynamic as two actors is really nice, too. Uh, they had been acquainted previously. I think Bill Shatner was Plummer's understudy in a Canadian Shakespeare company as a younger man. 
and they really have a lot of chemistry. Of course, as well, there are very few things in this movie that are joyful, but Christopher Plummer spinning around in his spinny chair spouting lines from Shakespeare <laughs> is really a thing of joy. <laughs> Just spinning around intoning, I am constant as the northern star. <laughs> that is the sort of camp, I suppose you have to call it, that Star Trek kind of excels at sometimes. And a sort of camp that Bill Shatner is great at, which might be a large part of Star Trek excelling at it sometimes. He, he doesn't get that sort of uber-Shakespearean scene, at least explicitly, but that sort of style is always there. One more thing on Kirk grieving his son in that movie. He says he's never been able to forgive the Klingons for David's death. Isn't that sort of a Klingon point of view? The sort of blood toll and grudges and the need to revenge? You could see it that way. Although he sort of did get revenge, because he killed Commander Krooch. That's probably something that plays into the trial more than Kirk's characterization, right? In a Klingon trial, in a Klingon setting, it's easy to play that clip of him talking about his son and cast everything that he's done as a grand act of revenge against Klingons. Well, obviously that's what Chang was trying to do. Right. By the way, I've always kind of imagined Klingon trials as being somewhat similar to Cardassian trials, where the accused doesn't really have much of a chance. Well, we really only have this one example. Yeah, in terms of Klingon trials, we only really have this movie and an episode of Enterprise, I think. And not a whole lot of examples. This trial scene on Kronos, was it Have Spacesuit Will Travel? It was some Heinlein book where somebody travels and winds up on this alien planet where they're like chosen as the representative of humanity and they're brought to a f sort of a trial where they're in like the middle of an amphitheater under a spotlight and there's like all these thousands of aliens surrounding them in the amphitheater that are judging him. I think that was Half Space Suit Will Travel. I may be misremembering which book it was. I'm pretty sure it was a Heinlein book, though. You look like you have no idea what I'm talking about and have not read the book that I'm trying to remember. It's been a very long time since I've read a lot of Heinlein, and I don't remember the scene you're talking about. Okay. Maybe it's not Half Space Suit Will Travel. Although it might be. I don't think I ever actually read that one, so it may be. The interesting thing, and this has nothing to do with anything else, actually, but now that I mentioned Have Spacesuit Will Travel, there was a Star Trek novel that was written as a sequel to Star Trek VI that took place in large part on Kronos, where they're preparing to evacuate the planet so that they're not all killed by the radiation debris from Praxis. Asteroids from Praxis crash on the planet periodically, and so they have to like build really huge protective structures to protect all their ships and their homes and everything. And that novel is basically a have-spacesuit-will-travel Star Trek crossover fanfiction, where it casts one of Kirk's nephews. If you remember from the episode Operation Annihilate, where Kirk's brother dies, but his nephew is said to survive. Right. It casts that nephew in the role of the boy from Have-Spacesuit-Will-Travel, where he is kidnapped off-planet by the Klingons in an attempt to get at Kirk. And he meets this Klingon woman, and they fall in love. 
and then they escape Kronos, and there's a sort of a parallel of the trial scene where he has to like persuade this group of Klingon warriors that they're in the right, and it's this whole conspiracy thing where people don't like the peace process, and so they're going to try to depose Chancellor Azetbor. But in large part, it is basically, it functions as and have spacesuit will travel AU of Star Trek, set after Star Trek VI with Kirk's nephew as the boy who gets kidnapped off Earth by the aliens. Interesting. Which is, re- it was interesting to me because I read that novel in sometime in like the early 90s, and I didn't read Have Spacesuit Will Travel until about 10 years later. <laughs> Well, that's the sort of thing we, we do now, where we see the references and the allusions before the actual source. <laughs> Moving on to more of the characters, Spock, I think, is an interesting case here. Not only because he's the only one of the characters who is a little more forward-looking, at least at the beginning of the movie. But also, he sort of sums up his journey throughout all of these movies, and since the original series, in one scene with Valeris, where they're both kind of talking at cross-purposes, that neither of them really genuinely gets what the other one is alluding to. Yeah. But he sums up all his character growth. He says, logic is the beginning of wisdom and not the end, which Valeris might take as a bit of a repudiation of Vulcan philosophy, but really isn't. Well, it's basically what Spock has been learning for the last 25 years. Right. Well, if we're talking about Valeris now, we should bring up that in the original idea, when they were coming up with this storyline, Valeris was Savic. And it's painfully obvious throughout the movie that that character is supposed to be Savic. There are several references to Savik in Star Trek II that are still in the movie, where Valeris turns around and quotes regulations at Kirk, and everyone just sort of looks around and smiles at each other, like, ha, oh, she's still at it. There are several references to the interaction after they're rescued from the Genesis asteroid, where Savik realizes they've been speaking in code, and she turns to Spock sort of scandalized, like, you lied? And he, Spock says, no, I exaggerated. And there's several references to that in the movie between Spock and Valeris, which make no real sense unless you realize that Valeris is supposed to be Savic. Also, the interrogation scene that we discussed earlier, though the entire dynamic of that scene is heightened a great deal if that's Savic from Star Trek II and not random new Vulcan that we just met 40 minutes ago. The matter of Valeris versus Savic was a matter of great concern in the uh, pre-production of the movie. They were trying to get Kirstie Alley back, but at that point, Cheers was really quite popular, and so she might have blown up the budget of the movie. She also, I think, would have had concerns returning to Star Trek at that point. They never approached Robin Curtis. That was never a consideration. They didn't even approach Robin Curtis? No, she was not asked, huh. and I think she took that as a bit of an insult. And that's fair enough. I would imagine it is a bit of an insult. Although, given her performance in Star Trek Three, not necessarily an undeserved insult. Well, that is as may be. Kim Cattrall wasn't really attracted to taking the role of Savick as the third woman to play her. But when it was decided to just make her a new character, she was more willing to come in and do it. Also, she would have been way too young to play Savick. I mean, considering this is like ten years after Star Trek Two. 
Almost, yeah. Kim Cattrall in 1991 is not 10 years older than Kirstie Alley was in 1982. Yes, but, I mean, that would have just been a little more movie magic. Kim Cattrall trying to act like a Vulcan is sort of not entirely successful. Like, the way she tries to deliver her lines, I guess she's trying to sound aloof a little, but she just winds up sounding, like, really breathy and detached. It can be hard sometimes to get the shading of a Vulcan character right, because I would have to assume as an actor you look at it and it seems like a very limiting paradigm. Yeah. You look at what Leonard Nimoy was able to do over the course of 50 years, and you see a lot of the shades and a lot of the subtlety that he invested in it, and some of the other actors who have played Vulcans over the years. But sometimes it can be a very tough challenge. One more note on Valeris and Savick. Apparently that was one of Gene Roddenberry's biggest objections during the scripting stage and pre-production stage. There was a very tense meeting that he had with Nicholas Meyer, where Roddenberry and all of his coterie, I assume Leonard Maislish and... Richard Arnold. Yes, and Richard Arnold, Susan Hackett maybe. Yeah, Susan Sackett. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Susan Sackett, not, no, not Susan Sackett. Not yes, th- Susan Sackett. <sighs> and Susan Sackett, and on the other side was Nicholas Meyer and his whole coterie. Was Leonard Nimoy part of this? Because he was part of the writing process. I don't know if Nimoy was in this particular meeting. I would kind of assume not, because he might have been a little more of a peacemaker, but... According to Nicholas Meyer, years later, the way that he behaved in this meeting, kind of telling off Roddenberry in pretty strong language, especially about Savick, saying basically, I wrote Star Trek II, she's my character, she's not yours, fuck off. Which... Which is a perfectly fine position for him to hold, and he's entirely justified in holding that position, and it's probably the sort of thing that you feel bad about after the guy dies. Exactly. You kind of feel bad about yelling at a dying man. Because this was, again, about a year before he died, maybe. You know, he had been ill for some time. Yeah, he was ill for a while before he finally died. Yeah, and so I can very easily see how he would regret it years later. But that was the subject of a bit of a tiff. Roddenberry's very last tiff might have been. Spock has one of the great lines in all of the movies. After the mind meld with Savick, where he reports that she doesn't know where the conference is, and if they don't know where the conference is, then they can't go and protect the heads of state, and the heads of state are going to be murdered, and the war is going to start. And so when he reports that she doesn't know where the conference is, Scotty has the line, well, if we don't know where to go, then we're dead. And Spock has this great line where he sort of collects himself from his reaction to the Savick. I keep calling her Savick, don't I? Yeah, you do. Spock collects himself from his reaction to the Valeris mind meld, and he has this great line where he says, I've been dead before, which is one of the great lines in the entire movie series, I think. And it's sort of Spock's version of the moment from Star Trek II where they're on the Genesis asteroid and Kirk just sort of smugly flips open his communicator 
Because they're all sitting there thinking they've been abandoned, and if the Enterprise still exists, it's left them far behind in an effort to escape, and they've sort of been abandoned in this asteroid, and they're going to feed off the Genesis planet for the rest of their natural lives. And then Kirk just sort of smugly flips open his communicator and says, Hey, Spock, it's been two hours. You all set? And Spock's like, oh, yes, Admiral, right on schedule. <laughs> and that's sort of Spock's version of that, where Spock just sort of says, Yeah, I've been dead before. I have a plan. <laughs> Spock has got things locked down in this movie, for the most part, except for a couple instances where he loses control emotionally. But... He does a lot of Sherlock Holmes-style investigating and deducing. He does a lot of that. And it's interesting to compare this movie to The Tholian Web, which is another story where Kirk is off the ship and believed dead, and Spock is in command. And in this story, Kirk is off the ship and sentenced to the alien's graveyard and believed lost forever. And Spock is in command to try to figure out what's going on and figure out a way to rescue the ship. And it's interesting to compare and contrast them because in the Tholian web, he faces a lot of opposition. A lot of the crew, especially McCoy, who is still there in that episode, they question a lot of his orders. They don't want to go along with what he wants to do. They think he's too emotionally detached that he, he is not making good decisions because he's not factoring in emotional components. They, they think he, he's too cold and detached to make the right sort of decisions to protect people. Whereas in this movie, Spock is very much a calming factor. When the whole crew is like excited, like, oh crap, they arrested our captain and they sent him to the alien's graveyard... And the crew is almost kind of yelling at each other. Like, one crew member says, you know, well, the computer says we fired torpedoes. And Scotty yells back, no, we didn't! I counted the torpedoes! We didn't fire any! And Spock is sort of the calming factor that gets everyone settled down. And he really slowly and methodically investigates the whole thing. This is what we need to do. This is step one of figuring out what happened. This is step two of figuring out what happened. We need to visually account for every torpedo. To prove that the data banks are wrong and we didn't actually fire any. Here's what we need to search for. We need to search the entire ship. Here's what we're looking for that we need for physical evidence. And everyone follows him. Nobody questions him. Very much unlike the Tholian web. And you could argue that that's just because McCoy's not there and he's the one most likely to question him. But unlike the Tholian web, nobody questions Spock. Everyone goes along with what he says. This is 25 years later. Everyone trusts Spock now. Everyone knows that he's going to do the right thing. And everyone follows him on this really slow, methodical investigation to uncover exactly what the fuck just happened. Yeah, and he has got things thought out pretty far ahead to have his little tag that he sticks on Kirk's shoulder ready on the bridge right with him before Kirk even decides to go over to the Klingon ship. Before they've even fired, seemingly. Well, like, maybe at this point he just keeps that shit at hand. You know, it's like it's just like the Boy Scouts, always prepared. Yeah, does he Kirk's just, always getting himself into shit, and Spock needs to be prepared. Yeah, does he just put that on Kirk whenever he goes anywhere? Also, notice he puts one on Kirk, but not on McCoy. Which is just like Star Trek Two when he says, Jim, be careful. And McCoy's like, well, we will. Yes, yes. And Kirk points out to McCoy, well, I'm wearing a patch, and Spock's going to find us. And McCoy doesn't actually say, well, you didn't notice, didn't put one on me, now did he? Everybody kind of ages differently 
right? Even though everyone's getting old. And at the end of this movie, Spock seems like kind of a cantankerous old man. When they're given the order to report, to be decommissioned, and Spock has another great line, if I were human, I believe my response would be, go to hell, if I were human. So he's kind of voicing that kind of cantankerous dissatisfaction with what the higher-ups want them to do, but also kind of sidestepping it. Well, that also sort of plays into, and this is part of the whole end of an era thing that we sort of mentioned but didn't really get to talk about yet. We'll get there. That that sort of plays into Kirk's tradition of nonsensical helm orders. The very last one. Like, every movie, well, I think half the movie, because they didn't do one and two or three or five, I don't think. But at the end of Star Trek 1, at the end of Star Trek 4, and at the end of Star Trek 6, he has this tradition of nonsensical navigation orders. Where he orders, like, out there, that away. And then, at the end of Star Trek 4, when they get their new ship, and Sulu asks for a heading, and Kirk just says, let's see what she's got. And this is the last one of Kirk's nonsensical navigation orders, where he tells the helmsman to go to the second star to the right, and straight on till morning. And they literally fly off into the sunset. Well, they try to fly off into the sunset, except they're not on a planet, they're in space. So what they end up doing is flying straight into the sun. It doesn't really work as well. (laughs) Is that in one of the novels as well? There is a post-Star Trek VI novel called Shadows on the Sun. It doesn't actually involve them flying into a sun. That's from Descent 2, from Next Generation. There are so many post-Star Trek VI novels. There's this whole, like era between Star Trek VI and the beginning of Next Generation that so many novels fall into. Well, that too, but there is like a specific series of post-Star Trek VI novels, because, and I guess we'll get to this now, a large part of Star Trek VI is they're going to decommission the ship and retire most of the crew, or at least most of the senior staff. And so there's a whole series of post-Star Trek VI novels where they come up with a reason why the ship is not going to be decommissioned and why the whole crew is not going to be retired, and then they can just keep flying around and having adventures. And so there is a particular sequence. It's not quite the organized post-series novels like they did after DS9 went off the air and after Voyager went off the air, but it's sort of a precursor to that. All right, because you always need some place to s- squeeze in novels. I assume... I mean, we don't have Tim back to give us an update on the history of Star Trek comic books, but I I assume they did something similar. Obviously. The comic books handle things very differently from the novels, and we covered this part a lot in that episode, where the comic books just kept telling contemporaneous stories, as in stories that were happening sequentially. Whereas the books didn't. Most of the books took place back during the original series. And then there were some novels that took place like after Star Trek 1, but before Star Trek 2. And then there were a handful that took place after Star Trek 6, but before the ship was actually decommissioned eventually. But novels were told from like any point in the timeline. Whereas the comic books were almost exclusively now. Like comic books that came out between Star Trek 5 and Star Trek 6 were taking place between Star Trek 5 and Star Trek 6. Whereas the novels that came out between Star Trek V and Star Trek VI took place during the original series, during the aftermath of the original series, during the last two years of the original five-year mission after the original series, during the period after Star Trek I. 
not necessarily between Star Trek V and Star Trek VI when the book came out. We mentioned McCoy a couple of minutes ago, and of course he's always been a cantankerous old man. In this movie, he says he's three months away from retirement, so now he's Danny Glover. It's a really interesting thing for him to say, considering he was not in Starfleet at the beginning of Star Trek One. Right. Where he says, I've been the ship surgeon on the Enterprise for 27 years. Well, you weren't for a few of those years. And when it was refit for three years, you weren't. Well, you know, you tend to fudge details sometimes. Especially during court proceedings, right? Naturally. Well, that just plays into... I mentioned it before that they're saying... They say a couple of times in the movie that everyone's going to retire. Or that the ship is being decommissioned. Or both... Sometimes they're not exactly clear which one they're referring to. And neither one really makes sense. Because just because a ship is decommissioned doesn't mean every officer serving on it would retire. Yeah. Especially Spock, who as a Vulcan can be expected to live twice as long as any of the humans. And so even if he's in his 50s or 60s, he could still expect like another 100 years of productive life. And it makes no sense to decommission the ship. Assuming that was a new ship in Star Trek IV. So that ship is only like 10 years old, maybe? Well, you know how the military doesn't always use its resources in the most efficient way, right? You know, they've got to decommission the old designs to put more of the new designs into service. And you so know, they're pumping out Excelsior-class ships at an accelerated rate. Also, if everyone on the Enterprise is of the age ready to retire, why is Sulu not also retiring? Is it just because he managed to transfer off? He escapes the retirement? Yeah, he's the one who gets to be a captain now. There's finally a captain of a ship other than the Enterprise who gets to be competent because he came from the Enterprise. But I mean, Chekhov doesn't get to go serve on another ship. Even if the Enterprise is being nonsensically decommissioned after 10 years of service, Chekhov doesn't get to go serve on another ship. He was first officer of the Reliant 10 years ago. He doesn't get to go serve on another ship now. Uhura is, well... Uhura is not portrayed that way in this movie, but according to everything else, she's like a communications expert and a languages expert. She doesn't get to go serve somewhere else. She has to retire just because the ship's being decommissioned. Let's hit on that pretty quickly while we're on Uhura, since I think it's pretty much the only bit on Uhura in the movie. Because a lot of the non-big three members of the cast, and really everyone other than Kirk and Spock, the characterization is a little light. So with Uhura, her main scene in the movie is a scene which depicts her as not the best at her job. No, that scene does not at all jive with how she's portrayed in pretty much everything else. In, like, fandom conventions, in the novels, in the reboot. Yeah. Everywhere I... else, Uhura is, like, this expert communications and languages person. I keep saying expert before, and then I don't have any word other than expert to say after. <laughs> she right. is an expert languages and communications expert in everything other than this movie. In this movie, she doesn't know how to speak the language of the Federation's sworn enemy. It's kind of like a CIA agent in the 80s who doesn't know how to speak Russian. Right, and has to have a whole room full of people leafing through huge dictionaries to try to figure out a broken sentence. Which, I get the comic relief aspect of it, and we've been quoting it to each other for 25 years almost. 
And yeah, we are condemning things and supplies is one of my favorite things to say. However, it still doesn't explain how putting together an incredibly awkward, ungrammatical sentence from all of these paper books, rather than just using like Google Translate, how is one better than the other? I don't understand. Yeah, that's kind of an odd bum note. I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense if they say the universal translator would be recognized, so you can't just like speak in English and trust the computer to translate it. But you could still, like, get the computer to translate it and then read the translation rather than, like, flipping through all these Klingon to English dictionaries that they happen to have laying around. Yeah. Like I said, I get the comic relief aspects of it, but it really doesn't speak well to her character. No. And they do the same thing to McCoy when he goes over to the ship to try to save Gorkon. And he says a couple of times, I have no idea what Klingon anatomy is. How are you, you know... He's a doctor and exobiology expert. He treats many, many species. In the original series, we see him treat like a dozen different species in various episodes. He is an expert in treating all kinds of different people, and yet the Federation's primary enemy for the last hundred years, he doesn't know anything about their anatomy? Enough to try to patch up a phaser wound? I mean, what happens if there's in a battle and they take enemy prisoners that have been injured and they have to be treated according to whatever the interstellar Geneva Convention is? And McCoy's just going to stand there and go like, well, I don't know how to treat a phaser wound in a Klingon. Right, well, at that point he'd have to figure out their anatomy, but the idea that there's absolutely no knowledge is kind of strange. They do the same thing to Chekhov, too. Uh, Chekhov, who is nominally the security chief of the Enterprise, but really, really sucks at security chiefing. <laughs> like, he doesn't know about phaser alarms. There's the whole crewman Dax, if shoe fits, wear it scene that makes him out as this buffoon. Also, I think it's sort of questionable that in the Enterprise kitchens, they have a cabinet full of phasers and not even, like, a lock on it. You don't need, like, a voice print identification. You don't need a retina scan. You don't even need a key. You just, like, flip open a panel and there's, like, a whole cabinet full of phasers right there. Well, of course, they need hand phasers in the kitchen in case the power goes out on the ship and they need to warm up some coffee. Of course, since it's a sci-fi kitchen, they have the phaser bank, haha, and a wall of computer panels and everything you have in a kitchen. Because that's how we roll on the Enterprise. Yeah, this this Enterprise is a much more high-end Enterprise than the original series Enterprise. Like, the original series Enterprise is like a Motel 6. And this Enterprise is like a Four Seasons. It has like a state dining room. It has like a full kitchen instead of just some food slots and the crew lounge. Yeah, all sorts of amenities on this Enterprise that weren't there in the original series. It has the dining room and all that, but... In another Nick Meyer touch, he likes a bit more of a naval aesthetic. The quarters are very small. Kirk's quarters are very small. Sulu's quarters on the Excelsior are very small. The underlings on the crew have large rooms with bunk beds. You know, there's that sort of Nick Meyer verisimilitude-ish touches. Well, they say in this movie, there's a line when they're talking about searching for the uniforms. They say we have a crew of 300 turning all their quarters inside out. Which is a really interesting thing to say because in the original series, the Enterprise had a crew of 430. And this refit Enterprise is slightly bigger, not 
hugely bigger, but it's slightly bigger than the original series Enterprise. So it's a slightly bigger ship, and it has 130 fewer crew, give or take, rounding errors. And the crew is much more tightly packed, because the quarters are all visibly smaller than, like, Kirk's quarters on the Enterprise were. So... I guess they gotta make room for, like, the kitchens and the state dining room and the forward observation lounge and all of these high-end amenities. Well, maybe the other hundred people on the crew have already been decommissioned. (laughs) We don't need a full crew complement to go escort the Klingon Chancellor through Federation space. Also, how do you think Captain Sulu treats his helmsman? Oh, he's gotta micromanage the hell out of that helmsman. No way would he give an order like Spock did in Star Trek Two, I believe it was, where he told Sulu, indulge yourself. Yeah, that was Spock getting in on the nonsensical helm orders. Right. Oh, I can take the Enterprise on a, on a corkscrew? Okay. Warp 7 corkscrew. <laughs> a couple other notes on, on other characters. Poor, poor Scotty, right? Throughout the length of Star Trek V, he could barely do anything on that ship to save his life. He could barely keep anything working at all on that ship. And now, in Star Trek VI, the ship is working fine, but he has to pretend it's not. Also, he apparently has no engineering crew to spare. Because when they need to go install a gaseous anomaly detector in a torpedo targeting system, the people that do it are Spock and McCoy. Well, McCoy doesn't know how to treat a Klingon who's been injured, but apparently he knows how to reprogram the targeting sensor of a torpedo. There are no, like, engineering personnel who could be reprogramming the torpedo, or weapons techs who could be reprogramming the torpedo, or even the science staff under science officer Spock who could be reprogramming the torpedo. No, it has to be the chief medical officer. We don't know any of those other characters. We don't care about them. You know, what, did you want him to use the Christian Slater cameo on that? That would have been better. We have Ambassador Camarag back after appearing in Star Trek IV, raging about the excesses of Captain Kirk. Do you think he has a point this time? For the most part. I mean, based on the available evidence, there's no way to contradict his point. I mean, we, the audience, know that our hero, Captain Kirk, wouldn't do this, but based on the available evidence that they have and the view the Klingons have of the war criminal Kirk, they, of course, would think he did, and there's nothing to contradict that supposition. You know, given Kirk's, at times, unremitting racism through this movie, I, I, I'm forced to conclude one man saw it coming. <laughs> Interesting, this is Kamarag's second appearance. He still isn't named on screen. Oh, no, of course. In fact, I'm not sure he's named anywhere other than that novel that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I don't think so. No, Klingon ambassadors don't often need names. The camp commandant, played by Morgan Shepard, I find very interesting. Because this is the second of Morgan Shepard's four appearances in Star Trek. It is both 72 years before and three years after his appearance as Dr. Ira Graves in The Schizoid Man. And it is both 35 years after and 18 years before his appearance as the chair of the Vulcan Science Academy in the 2009 Star Trek movie. 
That was him in the 2009 movie? Yeah. I did not realize that. The one who's really condescending about his human mother? The, the one who is a giant honking racist. That's Morgan Shepard. Cool. He also plays a character on some episode of Voyager, but... Didn't everyone. <laughs> but I just like the uh, temporal The timey-wimeyness. It is, it is sort of timey-wimey. And he was on an episode of Doctor Who. But yeah, it's, it's both 72 years before and 3 years after his first appearance. And it's 35 years after and 18 years before his last appearance. Uh, speaking of some intertextuality with Next Generation, as we were earlier, we have Colonel Worf in yes. this movie as Kirk and McCoy's defense attorney, played by Michael Dorn. I think that's supposed to be Worf's grandfather, if I remember correctly. I think so. Also, I didn't notice it in the movie, but I've read that the person who's translating, or one of the people translating, is Captain Claw. Really? I read that somewhere. I didn't notice it. I mean, there was a guy translating, and the voice was, like, vaguely familiar, but... Okay, according to this article on Memory Alpha, the same actor who played Captain Claw also played the translator in Star Trek VI. That was actor Todd Bryant. The Star Trek encyclopedia that the Okudas wrote in the 90s said that that was the same character, so that was Claw doing the translating. But according to whoever wrote this wiki entry, that was not the intention of the producers, and so it shouldn't be considered the same character. Interesting. If so, that would make Claw and David Warner both appearing in consecutive movies playing different characters. Two people and two characters kind of being affected by the collective desire to not talk about Star Trek V very much. <laughs> Look, we know you'd like to tell people you were in Star Trek without having to admit you were in Star Trek V, so come on back, you can be in Star Trek VI. We, on the other hand, talked about Star Trek V a great deal on our last episode. Oh, good lord. Yeah, you can say that and laugh about it. I had to edit that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. What do you think about Iman in this movie as Martia? I think she's fine. I mean, I don't have any real strong opinion one way or the other on it. She's just kind of there, and she serves her role, and that's it. I think it's kind of an interesting meta-narrativized symbolic beat that... Kirk fights Kirk, who is also Iman, who is also David Bowie's wife. And so that, that kind of adds a little bit of another layer of glam or camp to that scene. Is Martia the only woman we see in the prison camp? Possibly. I don't remember any others. Depending on what alien genders are. Of I course, suppose. finally, in the short fight scene between Kirk and the blue alien, we get some diversity in body placement among aliens, and it's all about where their junk is. This sure is an original series movie. Well, Kirk gets sent to this prison gulag, which they actually explicitly call a gulag in the movie, and the first thing he does is meet the only beautiful woman in the camp, and then she starts making out with him. Because it's Kirk. Even McCoy is kind of like, oh, for the love of Pete. Yes, it's too much even for McCoy. And it's kind of sad to have to say it, but good on them for casting Iman and not giving her a nonsensical, really revealing outfit. 
Oh, William Ware Thiest didn't design her wardrobe? Yeah, Bill Tice didn't design this movie. Speaking about the costuming decisions about this movie, I understand this is something of an obsession for you. It seems to be. I keep making all these notes about the wardrobe. I didn't realize until we started doing these podcasts, actually. Neither did I! Most of my notes about the wardrobe in this movie are, it's, it ties into the whole end of an era thing that we sort of half talked about before, or is that this is the last appearance of a lot of costumes that have been around, many of them since Star Trek One. The engineering radiation suits from the motion picture are still there in Star Trek Six. The uh, security officer body armor from Star Trek One is still here in Star Trek Six. The uh, sort of maroon jumpsuits from Star Trek Two are still here in Star Trek Six. They all make their last appearance in this movie. The uh, sort of maroon jacket from Star Trek Two will sort of... Well, it returns, obviously, in the beginning of Generations, and then it sort of recurs in a lot of scenes set before the next generation. So that'll sort of pop up again here and there. But for a lot of these uniforms that have been around since 1979, or at the least since 1982, this is their last appearance in the franchise. Yeah, and that does kind of carry into the end of an era feeling with elements of the original series movie aesthetics kind of getting handed over. That handover would be a lot more explicit in the next movie, but it's also pretty explicit in this movie. There is, of course, the matter of all the sets from The Next Generation that we discussed a little bit, but the engineering set is reused, the observation lounge, the 10 forward set is the president's office, all redressed and lit much darker. Yeah, you could see, if you know what you're looking at, you can see that that engineering set is the TNG engineering set, but it's not... All the TNG sets are sort of lit with, like, a bright yellow. And for the filming of Star Trek VI, it's lit much more in, like, blues and greens and much more subdued lighting. Right, and blues and greens are the colors of the original series' computer panels, and they're used a lot in the lighting of these films. And, of course, the lighting on Next Generation is much brighter for television anyway. Yeah. But that also, of course, carries through in terms of the characters aging in the sense that no matter their resistance, they have to give way to another generation. Kirk gives a Captain's Log entry at the end of the movie pretty explicitly talking about another crew to them and their posterity will commit our future. And in a way that is handled pretty deftly and is kind of a beautiful moment, Shatner gives this summation and reassurance that our adventure is ending, but the human adventure is only beginning, as they say. There's a really interesting point in Kirk's final narration, in that final log entry, where... He says that, you know, a new crew is going to take over our legacy and they're going to continue to journey where no man and where no one has gone before. And it's sort of meant as like a bridge between the way it was said in the original series intro and the way they edited it for the Next Generation intro. But the way Kirk says it, it sort of highlights the what I see as a very significant difference between those two things. And one of the reasons why I actually still, to this day, prefer the original series version of Where No Man Has Gone Before. 
Because where no man has gone before and where no one has gone before are two very different things. And it's one of the things that we talked about earlier in this movie, where Kirk says everybody's human. You know, there are... If you, if you want to take what he's actually sort of trying to say and take his human ethnocentrism out of it, everybody's people. Tellarites are people, and Andorians are people, and humans are people, and Vulcans are people, and Klingons are people, and Romulans are people, and Sigma Draconis people are people, and, and Troyans are people, and Eurasians are people, and... Babel, what are people from Babel called? Do they call them Babylonians? Babylonians. <laughs> All these different people are just people. You know, there's an episode where we discover that a lump of rock that eats other rock is people. Everyone's people. And so when you say where no man has gone before, you are very explicitly saying, we're going to explore places where humans have not seen before, and we're going to meet the aliens that live there. And we're going to explore those sections of space, and we're going to meet new life and new civilizations, and we're going to get along with them. If you, When you say where no one has gone before, well, you are eliminating the possibility of meeting new life and new civilizations, because they are ones who would have gone there before. And personally, I think exploring where no human has gone before is much more interesting than exploring where no one at all has ever gone before. That's an interesting point that I hadn't considered before. Really? Because it's been bugging me for like 15 years. Has it? I'm glad you got that off your chest. <laughs> and the way Kirk says it highlights the difference. Because he says literally, they will go where no man, pause, where no one has gone before. Well, that's a fairly explicit difference. If there's already people living there, then it doesn't fall into the category of where no one has gone before. There are ones there. If you want to meet new life and new civilizations, then you can't go where no one has gone before. You can only go where no human has gone before. That, I'm sure, is an unintended side effect of trying to broaden it from well, obviously. the gender distinction, but one that might also highlight that sort of uh, human chauvinism. Well, it, it, it is sort of a bit of human chauvinism, where you say where no one has gone before, and you don't factor in, well, if there are people already living there, then there are ones who have gone there before. It's like saying Columbus discovered the New World. Well, what about the millions of Native Americans that were already here? They didn't yeah. discover it? Although he also says that the future generations will journey to all the undiscovered countries, which is said in this movie many times to be the future, which is truly where no one has been. That's true. But it's also where everyone will be. Here's hoping. <laughs> of course, Kirk gives his... That lot, final log entry... As the ship is flying into the sun. <laughs> and they try to fly into the sunset, but the sun doesn't set when you're already in space. So they just fly the ship into the sun. It's symbolic, okay? It's one way to scuttle the ship. Go to hell. Capitan Bayou. So they fly the ship into the sun as Kirk giving this last log entry. And then they transition to this sign-off scene. Where all of the seven main actors from the original series sign off on screen. Where the signatures of all the actors. Which I think is a really good way to end it. 
if this is the end of an era, and this is the end of the 25 years of the stories of the original series and the original crew, I think that's a really good way to sort of put an ending on it and say, okay, this is what we did, we're done, this is our creation, this is our opus, it's over now, and they all sign off at the end. I think that's a really good way to end it. It's really done very effectively. It's a good way to sign off on this decades-long saga of the original series Star Trek, and it has the best piece of music from the score under it to close out the film. It's definitely a classy way to end it. And a classy way to kind of treat those actors right at the end of this movie. And it's one of the most celebratory pieces from the score, for sure. This is a score by Cliff Eidelman, one of his first credits, I believe, that is extremely brooding. It works in a lot of small gestures, interspersed with bursts of action and bursts of tension. And because this is more of a political thriller than any other Star Trek movie. The score really conforms to that. The main title is full of bombast and tension kind of crashing down on the opening credits. It's not heroic and celebratory in the way that the other main title sequences from Star Trek movies have been. There is a heroic theme for Kirk and the Enterprise, and there is Spock's theme, which is a little more ethereal. It's much more along the lines of James Horner's Spock theme from 2 and 3. But those moments of contemplation and small moments of heroism are few and far between during the body of the score. Those elements really kind of bloom at the end during that sign-off sequence and are really brought to fruition through the end title piece. Well, that theme from the main title piece that's sort of, like, very heavy and foreboding is basically Mars' bringer of war with the numbers filed off. Well, that was one of the ideas for the score for this movie before it was completed. When Nick Meyer came on, he inquired about getting James Horner back, and in the time since he had done Star Trek, his career had bloomed, and he was far too expensive. Well, by this point, he had already done Glory. Yeah, by this point, he had done Aliens and Glory and Cocoon and a bunch of other pictures of that sort. And his asking price was far too high. Uh, there was an idea to bring Jerry Goldsmith back, but his asking price was a little too high as well. Then there was the idea he wanted to adapt Gustav Holst's The Planets for use in the movie. He thought that might be a little cheaper, but The Planets was not yet in the public domain in 1991, and so they were negotiating <laughs> with the Holst estate, and they wanted to be paid, which was a big deal for a movie with such a tight budget. <laughs> and so Cliff Eidelman, who... I believe actually wrote his thesis on the planets for his master's degree, sent in a demo tape, which was enthusiastically received, and he was, of course, a young and therefore cheap composer, <laughs> and there is a good deal of the planets in here. There's a bit of Stravinsky as well, especially oh. the, uh, the very beginning of the score kind of echoes the Firebird. I was going to ask, are the other like movements of that planet suite 
also aped like the Mars part is? I'm not as familiar with the rest of it. I am really not familiar with the other parts of the planets either. They may be taken as inspiration, but it's not a straight adaptation, as was proposed at one point. But in reading about how it was thought to bring back Horner or Goldsmith, could you imagine this movie with either of their Klingon themes? Oh, man. Can you imagine this movie with all those synths? Good lord! There are some light synthesizers in here, but it's really a background. No, but seriously, can you imagine some, like, tense scene where Kirk's talking to Gorkon and Gorkon is all stately and impressive? Or he's talking to Christopher Plummer and Christopher Plummer's being, like, slightly antagonistic? And then all of a sudden there's a synth bird call as part of the Klingon theme? I'm not sure that would have been retained, but that's a good idea. Also, since Leonard Nimoy was involved in the early scripting process and was offered to direct the movie, uh, he wanted to hire Leonard Rosenman again. Oh, for the love of Pete! Uh, of course... Are they trying to find something more inappropriate for this film than a synth bird call? (laughs) The man has scored a variety of genres and a variety of movies over the course of his career, but imagine that one. I'm imagining Kirk and McCoy and Martia trekking across the frozen wasteland to get outside the beaming shield, scored with hospital chase. Someone should do that and put it on YouTube. Send us the link, listeners. Yes. (laughs) Good fucking God. I'm just imagining that scene in the snow now. With a piece from Star Trek IV rather than Eidelman's kind of melancholy take on Spock's theme. (laughs) This score, of course, as with all the other Star Trek feature scores, has been uh, released in a beautiful expanded edition. This one on Intrada Records, and it might be the one out of the 12 so far that benefits the least from being heard in full. Because, I mean, the original album was really a pretty good presentation of the best bits, It's not a bad listen in full, but this one and Star Trek IV, I think, off the top of my head, I think they're the shortest of the Star Trek scores. Although the Wrath of Khan score wasn't long, but... Yeah, I was going to say, there were large parts of Wrath of Khan that didn't have score. Yeah, Wrath of Khan isn't as long a score as you might think, but four and six are the ones that I think were best summarized on their respective albums, and the ones that, of course, I'm glad to get any of them and all of them expanded, as I have, thankfully, by now. But those two are not the ones that really desperately needed it in the way that some of the others did. In the, in the way that some of the others, some expected and some unexpected, really benefited from it. I'm sorry, I'm still picturing scenes from Star Trek Six scored by Hospital Chase. It never gets any less silly. You could do that with any other Star Trek movie, though. You know, do uh, Let's Get Out of Here in Star Trek V. He's running away from God, scored with the hospital chase. Man, if I knew how to edit video. <laughs> and so, as this movie brings an end to the era of the original series, we are going to bring an end to this era of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, as we are halfway through 
the existing Star Trek movies. And what have we learned? Well, we learned that the real God is the friends we made along the way. Yes. We learned that Kirk lost his brother once and was glad that he got him back, which must be really great news for George Samuel Kirk, who died in the original series. We learned that the words aren't always important. What's important is that you have a good time singing. We learned that anyone other than ILM does really, really shit visual effects. We learned that life is but a dream. And that's just what we learned last time. You know, we, we learned that uh, logic is not the end of wisdom, but the beginning. We learned that scientists have always been the pawns of the military. We learned that good words are where ideas begin. And that the death of your best friend can make you feel young. We learned that it is time for total truth. And now, we are going to learn how to end this podcast. <laughs> I've been trying to figure that out for about five minutes. All right. Thank you, Scott, for discussing this movie with me. Thank you, listeners, for listening to us discuss this movie. That'll do it for Star Trek VI. We will be back in two weeks, calling my shot, with Star Trek VII. We will see you then. It's not actually called Star Trek VII. Shut up. think there's anything I need to talk about. Is there anything else you need to talk about? I'm uh, still kind of disappointed I didn't get to bring up the return of Sarek's giant bejeweled chest plate. I didn't get to bring up the Pepto-Bismol blood. Man, one of these days we'll figure out how to podcast. Oh, GIF only. GIF only? Excuse me, it's GIF only. Hey, shut up! <laughs>